So, you know, prior to building out my own array, one of the things that kind of clued me into that solar might work on my land was, you know, the never ending junk mail that I would get that said, hey, we'd like to rent your land for solar. So at some point I took that to some of the folks who I knew in the solar industry and I said, hey, you know, everyone's trying to use my land for solar. Could I use it for solar? This episode is a conversation between Stacy Peterson, INCAT's Energy Program Director and Manager of the AgriSolar Clearinghouse, and Nate Tassinari, the owner of Million Little Sunbeams, a third-generation hay farm in Monson, Massachusetts. It's the second in a series of AgriSolar Clearinghouse podcasts that are being featured on ATRA's Voices from the Field podcast. Nate's hay operation is a one-acre farm that's co-located with a solar array that generates 250 kilowatts of power. It's centrally located among a network of family farms and has solar panels that are elevated 10 feet above the ground, both to accommodate haying equipment and to satisfy Massachusetts regulations for incentives. In the conversation, Nate describes the financial aspects of owning a solar array, how to harvest the sun during the winter, the interconnection of family farmlands, and the role solar can play in farm ownership. Let's listen. Welcome to Voices from the Field. I'm NCAT Energy Program Director Stacy Peterson, and I'd like to welcome Nate Tassinari to the show. Nate is the owner of Million Little Sunbeams, a third-generation hay farm co-located with solar in Monson, Massachusetts. Nate, welcome. Thanks, Dr. Peterson. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> you can call me Stacy. Can okay. you tell us a little bit about how Million Little Sunbeams got its start? Absolutely. It was about um, eight or nine years ago when my family looked around at our land and uh, realized that my grandmother, who was in her mid-80s at the time, was the owner of 160 acres of land and, and her house. And uh, we wanted to make sure that that stayed in the, family's, in, in, the, in the family hands. So I spoke to all my cousins, my aunts, and my uncles, who all live all around there, and came to the conclusion that the best thing for, for the family was is if I purchased the, the uh the house and all the land directly. From there, it was just a matter of trying to figure out how to continue and keeping the farm open and alive mm-hmm. and kind of maintaining the open land that, that my grandmother really loved. So yeah, that's how I came to own the land that we that uh, we call Ready Fox Farm and um, how eventually Million Little Sunbeams came, came about. So after I owned the land, um, I started to figure think about how I could make it productive it had been used as hay for, as my cousin used the, the fields for hay and for cow corn for as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was quite a bit of overgrown orchards and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we, we systematically started cleaning up the orchards and thinking about what we could do to keep the land and keep it profitable for the family. I evaluated in any number of options, which maybe I'll talk about a little bit later, but eventually came to figure out that solar would be an option for us. Mm-hmm. And my building of a solar array and the designing of the solar array coincided with a program in Massachusetts, which is called Smart Solar, mm-hmm. um, which empowers farmers to build solar and, and gives them a benefit for if they can build solar and continue to use the land and, as, in farming. So with the help of my solar contractor, we designed, land, we designed a, a solar array, which allowed us to continue to hay the approximately one and a half or two acres of land underneath the array um, and generate solar electricity, which keeps the land and the farm profitable. That's great. And and the name Million Little Sunbeams, does it have a family significance? Yeah. So my grandmother um, 
was a teacher and she based all of her curriculum for the third grade around a teacher. Um, his, his name is Thurton Burgess and he was from the town next door. Mm-hmm. So he wrote dozens and dozens of books um, and I read them to my kids now, even though they were written about a hundred years ago. And um, one of them is called Reddy Fox. And another one, one of the very last ones he wrote before he stopped writing was called Million Little Sunbeams. So when I um, needed to create the company to own the solar array, um, I looked through all the books and tried to find something that would fit. And a big smile came across my face when he found Million Million Little Sunbeams. And I thought that was the perfect name. Yeah, it it is. It's wonderful. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit more about the financial aspects? I'm interested in, you know, your ownership structure, um, how you, you know, how you decided that this would work for your, for your family and what kind of financial impact it's had. Could, Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So, you know, prior to building out my own array, one of the things that kind of clued me into that solar might work on my land was, you know, the never ending junk mail that I would get that said, hey, we'd like to rent your land for solar. So at some point, um, I, I took that to some of the folks who I knew in the solar industry and I said, hey, you know, everyone's trying to use my land for solar. Could I use it for solar? And, and so that's kind of how we started our investigation. And it turns out that, that there was a much better, much better financially for my family. So, so I owned the land and I had bought that years and years ago for my grandmother. And I decided that I was going to keep the land and, and, and build a solar array myself rather than having someone else build it for me. And that's beneficial in any number of ways. You know, I don't need to deal with a third party mm-hmm. who's asking to use my land and getting access to my land. Uh, it was helpful in the permitting process because I didn't have to represent somebody else or have someone else representing that they wanted to do something on my land. Okay. And I get all the tax benefits and all the all the depreciation and all the profit from it Great. Um, rather than, you know, just getting a lease check every year and wondering what was coming back on the other end to them, I know it's coming back to the other end and it's been very profitable. Yeah. So I think that's probably a good time for me to kind of talk a little bit about the SMART program and why it's been profitable and why it really works. So the SMART program in Massachusetts offers developers or or solar owners a a fixed rate tariff, meaning if you produce it, the utility will have to pay you that, um, uh, you know, a set amount for for, um, either 10 or 20 years. In my case, it's 20 years. I'm guaranteed a rate for 20 years, and the math works that whatever I produce times the rate that I, I get um, equals the amount uh, that I receive every month. And the the amount that I the rate that I receive is determined by a number of different factors. Um, one of them is the size of the array, and, and my array is while it's you know c- considered commercial, it's smaller, so a smaller array. Two, it's built over agricultural land, which continues to, and continues to be used in agriculture. And three, it's designated as a community solar um, array. So if you add up a small array in the right location where, where I am, that prescribes to community solar and is an agricultural array, you get a very positive number, a very positive rate that you're, you're receiving monthly. And, and so that has been very, very positive, very beneficial to me and my family. Once we determined that the rate was going to be really high, the next thing that we did to, to really drive the economics here was to drive the efficiency of the solar array. So try to figure out how we can make this thing really, really produce. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. You bet. Can you talk a little bit more about the community aspect? So do you sell the power back to your community? Is it is it community solar? Yeah, it is. So about 10%, I'm sorry, about 25 or 30% of the, the funds I receive are received from 
community folks. So um, I'll just use round numbers here. But if I um, if I receive thirty cents per kilowatt hour, I get twenty cents directly from the utility, okay. and the other ten cents gets given to to me in the form of in, in the form of credits. Okay. And those credits I send out to folks who prescribe to my community solar. Okay. And then I I bill them directly, um, giving them a discount. Great. For for prescribing to my to my solar array. So yes, and so I have depending on the month between twenty and twenty five subscribers. The large majority of them are friends and family, and then you know a couple of businesses that I guess would also consider friends at this point. So um, even the folks in my neighborhood who don't have solar on their homes yet are taking advantage of solar through my solar array. It's so great because it gives people the opportunity to have solar, even if maybe it won't work on their house or they don't have enough land, anything like that. So I think community yeah. solar is just wonderful that way. One thing I really like about the co-location of of solar like like you've done is that it can help keep family lands especially like in 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 areas where you have you know a whole group of family that that maybe lives together still in in an area or in a community uh you can keep those lands in family hands have you found that to be the case here yeah yeah so i think maybe to answer that question i think it's maybe i can go back and answer the history question a little bit deeper so the farm next door to my the farm next door to to my my land and my farm is my cousin's dairy farm, and they bought that around the turn of the century. And you know, about 40, 45 years later, um, my grandmother was uh, living, chasing chasing boys in New York City, and um, she found a guy, and and her father called her up from the farmhouse and said, "Hey, the farm next door is coming for sale. Uh, you need to come back up here and buy this." And so she did. So her and her new husband came, moved back up from New York, and um, and bought the farm next door. So they essentially had two farms next door to each other. My grandmother and her husband, my, my grandfather, didn't um, didn't do any more farming. They just let my cousins next door continue to farm all the land. Mm-hmm. And so eventually, we had these two houses. Uh, we had these you know, two houses that had our two houses and two farms for 120 years. Mm-hmm. And all the outlands from all of them eventually got dotted with all my cousins, aunts, and uncles. Great. So there's a section of town where you can put a pencil down and connect 23 houses wow. without lifting your pencil. That's cool. And these two farms represent the center Great. of the backyards and the fields and the forest and everything behind all these 23 houses. Wonderful. So if I hadn't bought the land and if I hadn't found a way of keeping it in the family through solar, yeah, there, there's a chance that something else, you know, we, I, I did, I looked at other things, um, <laughs> other ways of keeping, keeping the land or... What, what do you think would have happened? You know, were you looking at like housing developments or were you looking at, you know, some yeah. Things? Yeah. So there's two, there's two programs that, I mean, two things I looked at, you know, I did, I did do some for some foresting of the, or some timbering of the land. Um, there's uh, about half the land is in, is, is in uh, forests, forestry. So I probably would have done more of that, but I also did get someone to take a look at the land in terms of its development potential. And I'd say when I was doing this in um, maybe the mid 2015, 2016, you know, a developable uh, lot of land in my town was maybe worth thirty-five or forty thousand dollars. That number would be a lot higher today because it's become a very attractive place for people to live. So I, I don't know. It would have been really attractive for me to sell off some of those lots and okay. and to make a, de- a development. At this point, if I didn't have the solar kind of saying, you know, hey, you got this. You can pay the taxes. You can keep the farm there, 
um, you're, it's going to be okay. So it could have been, it really could have been a, a residential development, although um, it really, really would have broken my heart to do something like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. What does is, what is your family think about the project? Yeah, they frankly don't care. They, <laughs> you know, they like it. It doesn't bother them. That's the thing. That's the thing. It's it's not like up in your face. It's not like against the road right in your face saying I'm a big mm-hmm. solar farm. It's set in the back fields away from everything. And people kind of drive by and they kind of think it's cool. And my yeah. family, yeah, they, I mean, you know, they're fascinated by the number of people who are fascinated by it, actually. That's that's the biggest thing. They, they can't believe how many people are um, solar tourists and are visiting the visiting the site. Yeah, we had a great time visiting this summer. We came there on our tour and it, it is absolutely beautiful. But I agree, you know, you wouldn't notice it if we didn't know to go to your house. We we wouldn't know that that it was there. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about the practicalities of haying around solar. Do you do you find it difficult to hay around the the solar array? Yeah, so my original plan was to have my my cousins who are haying all the rest of the farm and fields to continue to do that. You know, I've got a much smaller tractor and you know i had a flail mower and you know but they've got all the right hanging equipment and so the original plan was for them to continue to do that they do not feel comfortable doing that you know even though i have 20 feet between the, the poles and and their their equipment definitely fits in between there they just are really nervous about hitting something and i'm not sure if they're nervous about damaging their equipment or about damaging the solar system but that's okay so this year i had to use uh, some of my profits i, I spent uh, maybe ten or twelve thousand dollars buying a a new mower, a new rake, and a new tether that are smaller in nature. So, and then I can just rake everything to the center, and they don't mind bailing it down the middle. So it does take a little bit of extra work. I had to buy some smaller equipment, but once I have the smaller equipment, it's fine. Yeah. And and certainly I I wouldn't steer anybody away from hanging under solar because of my experience. I would just say. You know, we make sure that you have a small enough mower to kind of really get closer around the, the poles. That's but it, it's it's fine. It's great. And it's shaded. It's nice. It's, you know, as opposed to when you're you're hanging out in the fields, you know, you do actually enjoy a little bit of the shade from the solar ray. So. Yeah, when we were there in August, it was so hot and everybody was just huddled under the panels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hot. It's hot. Learn how to harvest the sun twice with practical information at NCAT's AgriSolar Clearinghouse. Get access to more than 400 peer-reviewed articles, the latest in AgriSolar news, and connect with farmers and solar developers who are working together to make the most out of our shared resources. We'll see you at agrisolarclearinghouse.org. You you talked about winter productivity when we were there this summer too. You know the opposite of the summer issue. So um, could you talk a little bit about why there's more winter or why there's winter productivity and a little bit about the design of the array? Yeah. So in order to qualify as an agricultural um, system, I, I mentioned before that um, you know you have to continue to to hay or, or or to farm underneath the array. That means that the array is ten feet up in the air, and when we set and, and it's also a tracking system. So it tracks the sun east to west during the day to follow the sun. So I've got a tracking system. I've got it 10 feet up in the air. And then the the panels themselves are called, they're called bifacial panels, which means they collect energy from both the top of the array. And then as, as light energy uh, bounces off the ground, they collect it from the bottom. Mm-hmm. And in the wintertime, uh, when there's maybe two or three or sometimes four months of continuous snow on the ground, the snow is very reflective. And we've seen an appreciable bump in the production over the models from the bifaciality of the panels. Also, you know, the panels being 10 feet up in the air, 
they get a lot more, a little more wind up there, so they blow off the snow quite a bit. And them tracking the sun during the course of the day will actually shift some of the snow off. So we very, very rarely have any snow staying on the panels. And it gives me a certain satisfaction as I drive around in the area and I see, you know, they're kind of conventional solar systems all covered in snow, mm -hmm. not producing anything. And I can, I can look in my, my tracking system and see that I've, I've had a really good day that day. So it definitely gives me some satisfaction. Do you have like a, a dashboard? Do you monitor it? Are you able to monitor how much? Yeah. So I have, you know, part of my financing and I financed this and maybe it was something we should probably talk about, but was that, you know, I have to have a, a an operation, operation and a maintenance plan for it. So I have a company that I hire to um, send me a monthly report about what production is. But I also do have a, a daily dashboard on my phone and my computer that I can look at at any point to see at any point how much it's producing and if uh, something's wrong, That's great. which doesn't really happen. But yeah, So could you talk a little about your operations and maintenance plan? Is there a, a lot of maintenance involved? There's not a lot of maintenance involved. I mean, the tracking system, I anticipate um, I'll need to you know, lubricate and, you know, check the engines maybe every three or four years um, because it is, even though it's a, it's a relatively dumb system, um, it's still a mechanical system. So we'll have to make sure it stays in good shape. The only issues I've had were last year, there was a electrical storm and the system went down for a day. And the problem wasn't even on my end. The problem was outside of, of you know, on the poles that the utility owns. But, but I, you know, I still, I still had to get somebody out there to take a look at it, you know, and occasionally, if there's a particularly bad thunderstorm or something like maybe one of the inverters will just need to be cycled back on and off, but it hasn't been a big deal. And I would tell you that the contract that I sign yearly for the O&M is, is maybe it's 1% of my annual income for the solar array. So it's not a significant factor in, in, in deciding whether to do a project like this. It's, it's just something that gives you peace of mind because if the system wasn't running for a couple of weeks and you didn't have any tracking, you didn't know about it, it would be a bigger deal. But if you can catch it in, in a day and get everything back up and running, it, do, it doesn't really doesn't really move the needle. So this summer when we were there, there was just beautiful pollinator garden around your site in full bloom. And it got me wondering, have you seen an increase or a decrease to, you know, birds and pollinators and, and animals around your site since installing the solar? Has it made an impact to the local ecosystem? We, I, I guess it's difficult to say holistically. I can tell you anecdotally. Um, I, there's there's a red-tailed hawk that loves to sit on top of the uh, <laughs> off the on top of the array and off mice as they scurry through the hay. Mm -hmm. Since we finished the project, there's a, a stream nearby that a beaver has has uh, taken home and and um, dammed up and made a made a beaver pond. You know, I say the hay is the hay hasn't really changed much. Um, the hay is the hay, and so I suspect that whatever type of animals and mice and wolves and things are living under there are probably still continuing to live there. But we still have the same deer, fox, tur turkey, uh, coyotes rolling through that we always have. And, you know, the beauty of my system is that because it is 10 feet up in the air, I don't need any fencing. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have to fence off any of the wildlife or anything. You know, maybe I'll do some fencing in the future if I decide to put livestock underneath. Sure. But, I, you know, there's no fencing there now. And um, in terms of wildlife, there doesn't need to be. So do you think that there's potential for projects like this around the country, or do you think that Massachusetts is unique with its, you know, the SMART program and, and the policies that are supportive of this? That's a, that's a difficult question to ask. I'd say that in any state or any commonwealth where there is a relatively high cost of electricity, and there's a variety of urban space and rural space, that there's going to be opportunities for things like this. You know, this farm that I have is 
it's in a it's in what's considered a rural area. The population of the town is only eight thousand people. Now I know in other parts of the country that's that's not a small town, but but it is in Massachusetts, and and so you can get land relatively cheaply and do a project like this. But it serves electricity for higher cost areas. I would suspect that systems like this might also work for farmers who have a higher energy load themselves, right? Okay. So if, if they if, if they're going to use electricity themselves, I mean, the economics will be different, but I really do think it can work. And, and I think there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of research to be done around how these systems and how the shading that they, they provide actually could be beneficial in some cases um, to agriculture. Yes. You know, there are lots of crops that, that like some shade. Yes. And if you could take an acre or two or three and, and do, give it some partial shading mm-hmm. um, and, and, and offset all your electricity needs, I think there's a lot of benefit to that, particularly with the brand new um, tax incentives that just came out this, this year and they're going to get rolled out in 2023. There's a lot to look into. And I, I definitely think that folks should definitely take it into their, you know, take a look at it, whether it might work for their farm. What advice would you give a farmer or a landowner that's considering doing this? Well, I'd say that the, the lesson I've learned is, this, is really to try to do it yourself. You know, the going rate for an acre of solar in Massachusetts, if you're leasing it, um, has gone probably from $20,000 $20, an acre, probably all the way down to $5,000 an acre now. Mm. So if $5,000 isn't going to move the isn't going to move the needle for you and your farm, I'd tell you that the, the returns for me have been, you know, more than five times that. And, and really, if you can own it yourself, you should do that. And so I think it's probably important to talk about that. You know, so I financed this through an SBA loan. Okay. Um, there are also USDA loans available and USDA grants that are available to help farmers to get this done. Like the USDA. Um, so it, yeah, through a reprogram and, and, and through reap loans. Exactly. Yep. Great. So that might mean you only need to put down 15 or 20 or 30 percent of the, the cost of the solar array. And then you get to own it. And when you owning it means that you get all the tax credits, you get all the depreciation, and you get to own, you get to decide what you're planting underneath it and how it's designed and where it goes and all that. So I guess my first piece of advice would be don't just sign a lease because it, yeah. it sounds like an easy win. If somebody is willing to pay a large lease for your land to put solar there, mm-hmm. then chances are that it might work even better if you did it yourself. That's great. So the next step would be to find a solar developer who, um, an honest solar developer in your area who you can just have them take a look at your land and kind of walk you through whether it works or not. That's typically a free process. They're, they're happy, to, happy to look at it because they're going to get the development work for, for, for you. Definitely a good move to, to do that. Who is your solar developer? I worked with, with a company called Sunbug Solar. They have offices in Arlington, Mass. and in Westfield, Mass. And actually after... A project prior to mine and my project, they've actually just started to develop some kind of expertise and specialty in, in working in, uh, in dual-use solar uh, with agriculture. And, you know, back to the financial aspects, like what kind of payback are you seeing? Like how many years before it's profitable? Oh, well, be, you know, because I took the solar loan, I don't really think about it in a number of years. I can tell you that it pays for all the loan and plus, you know, plus money every year. But if I were to put it in the other way, Let's see. I'd say it's probably a five-year payback for me. Wow. That's great. Yeah, super fast. Yeah, it's not, that's, that's, that's. I think that's abnormal. I think the norm is probably eight or nine. But my, you know, the, the economics of my system and me owning the land upfront really help. Great. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, that's excellent. 
Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Nate. Uh, where can folks go to learn more about Million Little Sunbeams? Well, if you wanted to learn more about, you know, dual use solar, I, I, I push them towards your website, uh, Stacy, the AgriSolar website. Um, but uh, specifically in Massachusetts, UMass uh, School of Agriculture has a, a really great site and, and a lot of good information. It, it was one of the resources I used when I was kind of developing my plan. So yeah, UMass Agriculture and, and, and your site at AgriSolar. Dwayne Berger in that group. And, and we do have a, a case yep. study um, for Million Little Sunbeams on the AgriSolar Clearinghouse too. Anything else, Nate, you'd like to talk about? No, I think we covered a lot, all of this, Stacey. I'd say, you know, thanks for the opportunity to talk about Million Little Sunbeams. And I hope this is encouraging farmers to take a look at doing it themselves and doing more of what we've done in Massachusetts. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, that's that's I think that's the best model. So I, I love that you're willing to to be highlighted. This is great. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Additional information about this episode and related resources can be found at atra.incat.org. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Voices from the Field wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Rich Myers. ATRA, Voices from the Field, is produced by the National Center for Appropriate Technology, headquartered in Butte, Montana. It's supported by the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service as part of NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this recording are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the USDA or NCAT. We'll catch you again next week, and until then, keep on farming.